welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well done, guys. Thank you, Liam. Jumping up there, that's probably just a little taste of what the recital will be like, right? Mark down the recital, the fall recital, it's on your calendar, and a lot of the young folks and older folks who are um, uh, sharpening their skills in, uh, in worship music and instrumentation uh, will be able to bless us uh, through that fall recital coming up soon. Also, I wanted to make mention just briefly on the report. If you have any questions on that, please see me this week. Uh, we're, we're now less than a week until the meeting, so we can't make changes to the budget numbers before we vote. But if you have any questions, I would like to answer them. If you have any other questions I'd like to know, uh, contact me. I can prepare ahead of time and, and uh, actually have uh, a good, uh, good answer if it's, if it's applicable to the meeting. So contact me anytime this week. Also, um, I just uh, stepped away for a moment I see Lee Pichel is back with us today, a dear brother in Christ. And many of you know we've been praying for him on Wednesday evenings and in our groups as uh, he had a colon cancer surgery. And he is back with us for the first time today since that. And as Lee had gotten diagnosed, um, I uh, it was your experience that you had quite a bit of visitation up there too, Lee, and encouragement to you. Tell you to all you folks and all you young people and everything that, that ministered to our brother in Christ, thank you um, throughout this time. That is being the church and an incredible blessing it is. What a wonderful, it's wonderful to see you, Lee. Our last time together, we discovered that Antioch um, it's become the, the first predominantly Gentile church, uh, inclusive of some Jews, but predominantly Gentile. And uh, it is the first place where believers are referred to as Christians. That's where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, That term Christian simply means follower of Christ. Similar to how the Herodians uh, were people recognized as belonging to the political party of Herod or following Herod, uh, Christians belong to and follow Christ. We don't know for sure uh, where the term Christian originated, uh, but its usage here does imply there is now an increasingly distinction between unbelieving Jews and believing Jews. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Don't know exactly who was the first one to coin that, that term, but it seems there is an increasing distinction between unbelieving Jews and believing Jews. You know, early on, believing Jews, we're talking about the apostles in the early church, they continued to identify as Jews. But in the sense that they were Jews who had embraced Israel's Messiah. So true Jews, true Jews by faith in Christ. But now arises a problem between believing Jews and the Jewish nation, and and it's going to be a big problem going forward. Uh, Jewish believers, Christians, are beginning to be viewed as defectors from Old Covenant Judaism, and in a sense, in reality, they are. And some commentators believe it is the church's embrace of Gentiles that leads to the persecutions that we are going to observe in chapter 12. James is going to be killed. Peter is going to be arrested. And this uptick in persecution is likely due, at least in part, and maybe in large part, to how the apostles and the church no longer view Gentiles as unclean. After Cornelius and his household are saved, and after the church in Antioch uh, is founded, the church is becoming Jews and Gentiles mixed, and as a result, the nation of Israel, 
ethnic Jews in Jerusalem, they, they find that very offensive that the apostles would embrace Gentiles as brothers. So at this point, it becomes increasingly clear to the, the nation of Israel, speaking of ethnic Judaism now, uh, that what Peter, James, and John are now preaching and practicing, it's no longer just a Jewish sect. It's no longer just a division of the same old Judaism. After they embrace uncircumcised Gentiles, uh, the church is now no longer your daddy's Judaism. And the church can no longer exist as a subset of Judaism. In fact, from this point forward, followers of Jesus will now be viewed as something quite different from Judaism. And any ethnic Jew living in Jerusalem would conclude, uh, they're clearly not like us. It's like they're Christ followers. And, And though we can't be sure, it's possible that that term Christian was originally employed as a derogatory term. Things have changed. Peter, James, and John uh, can no longer identify as traditional Israelites. And the church, therefore, will lose favor with the general population of Jerusalem, uh, who had, on occasions previously, held the apostles in high esteem. I mean, they were healing everybody, right? You maybe remember back in chapter 5, the officers of the Sanhedrin were very careful not, not to mistreat the apostles out of fear they themselves would be stoned. And the apostles were so highly regarded at first, they were healing everybody. Then the persecutions under Saul erupted. But then soon after that, Saul converted. And the church in Acts 9.31 throughout all Judea, we are told, was enjoying a time of peace. That tide is going to turn again in chapter 12. And the Jews in Jerusalem are going to applaud when King Herod executes James, when he begins to mistreat the disciples. And Herod is actually going to find that it it actually pleases the Jews now that James has been murdered and put to death. So so this, this is probably because word is spreading all around now about how the church is now inclusive of the uncircumcised. Clearly, that is not Old Covenant Judaism. And therefore, the apostles are being increasingly viewed as Jewish apostates by the nation. Likewise, the Jewish synagogue in Antioch, the Jews who lived in Antioch, uh, they're probably insisting, these people are clearly not Jews. Jews have no dealings with Gentiles. It's like they're they're Christ followers or something. They're different from us. They're those Christians. And uh, though the term is only found three times in Scripture, uh, Peter uses it in an affirming way in 1 Peter 4.16, stating that if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So we are identified with Christ's name. Sometimes people ask me, it's like, who are you guys? You know, what are you? What do you believe over there at that Bible church? Are you Baptist? Are you Lutheran? Are you Methodist? Or what are you guys over there? And I typically respond, I'm a Christian. We are a Christian church. In fact, we are a Bible-believing Christian church, which will distinguish us from a lot of other Christian churches. Uh, And we preach Christ, for it is this name by which we are saved. So I generally refer to us as as a Christian church. And in Antioch, the Christians, the Christian church in Antioch, it's now categorized as those Jews and those Gentiles. They're worshiping, they're, they're working side by side together. Uh, that is something, by the way, that Orthodox Jews still will not do today. 
They are very sectarian. They don't want Gentiles around anywhere close. Um, And in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 displays what these Christians do. What these new Christians do. Uh, The passage reveals how the first century Christians... This is first Christian church of Antioch. How it responds once they receive news, there will be a famine in the land... Therefore, I have titled today's message, When There is Famine in the Land. Let's read together Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate, by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they did, and this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders." So this this all arises after about a year of instruction by Saul and Barnabas, who've been teaching the Old Testament, if you remember from two weeks ago. They've set up some classes, some adult Bible classes in Antioch, and Saul and Barnabas have been teaching the Old Testament to this, you know, mostly Gentile church. Imagine that class. You've got Saul... He's a Pharisee. He is trained as an expert in the law. Back when he was a Pharisee, he was at the top of his game, educated by Gamaliel, the best of the best. You have this Saul tag-teaming with Barnabas, a Levite. So he was raised as a member of the Levitical priesthood. And they've put this class together there in Antioch. And, you know, such a class would have surely received advanced training in Old Testament benevolence. An all-encompassing summary of the law, this would be according to Jesus. You can find it in Luke 10, verse 27. An all-encompassing summary of the law would be this. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, this would surely be a highlight of that curriculum in Antioch. And those early Christians, they would have surely heard the story of that time. You know, Jesus was approached by a rich young ruler who had claimed that he had kept the law since his youth, and how Jesus, we are told, felt a love for the man. He felt a love for him and said to him, there's one thing you still lack. Go and sell all of you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Become a Christ follower. Become a Christian. It's Mark 10 verse 21. Come and follow me. You'll remember being, being called a Christian is one who follows Christ. And, and Jesus feeling a love for that man, saying to him, you know, sell your stuff, give to the poor, come and follow me. He, he wasn't misleading that man, folks. Some want to dismiss this as if it's, it's, it's just for that guy. He had, a, he had a problem with materialism, right? Just for him. No, Jesus wasn't playing mind games with this man. Uh, he was giving it to him straight. You've got a heart problem. It's called materialism. And it prevents you from following me. Remember, the man went away sad. 
But this command isn't directed only at that young man. Elsewhere, Jesus commanded his own disciples to do the same. In fact, the following is what Jesus said to them in front of a large crowd in Luke 12, verse 33. He told them, first, don't worry about your life. And later, sell your possessions and give to charity. Give alms. Give to the poor. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. And just to add a a tad bit more of discomfort this morning... I might as well also add how later Jesus says, two chapters later, that's Luke 14, verse 33. uh, He says, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Folks, the prosperity gospel is a ruse. It's a lie. In the Bible... In Scripture, following Jesus is never amassing treasure on earth and storing up stuff. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, portray no easy path for the Christ follower. In addition... Saul and Barnabas would have explained to their class that that woven throughout the tapestry of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, was God's utmost concern for the poor. Leviticus 25 verse 35 is just one example. In the law it says, Now in the case that a countryman of yours becomes poor, then you are to sustain him. Like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you, that he may remain with you. You know, caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, we are told by James, is that, that's true and undefiled religion. Surely that would have been uh, one day of study out there with Saul and Barnabas. Uh, uh, they likely would have taught this first church in Antioch, the story of Boaz and Ruth. How Boaz was a generous man and how he was willing to give freely and uh, how Ruth uh, was a benefactor initially of that. Uh, they would probably also include, you know, you know Jesus had a dinner with this guy. His, his name was Zacchaeus. And uh, that, that man decided to give the poor half. And, and Jesus told Zacchaeus, Yeah, today salvation has come to this household. Very affirming, Luke chapter 9. And uh, here's the thing. These stories, a lot of us went to Sunday school. Whether we were believers yet or not, a lot of us have heard these stories in Sunday school. We have long been taught these. So, So this material that I'm sharing right now is not shocking to us at all, right? Because we in America, we are theologically astute. You know, we are learned people, right? We already all know this stuff. But for the average Gentile Christian in Antioch, you know, who was a first-timer at this, it, sitting in Saul's class, this would have revolutionized his or her life. They would have assumed something like, well, you know, so help me with this, Paul, Saul, Barnabas. Help me with this. So someone who picks up their cross and follows Jesus as Lord would give somewhere between half and all he owns to the poor? And those who were first called Christians in Antioch uh, would have likely concluded in their minds, this is what I think they probably concluded, half to, half to all. Yeah, that sounds about fair. For, for Christ who died for me, to give up everything for him, that, that's probably about fair. And Professor Saul would have responded, oh wait, 
I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. A little ahead of myself in the narrative. Um, we have to build up to this a little bit more. Uh, the, the tension that you are feeling in your chest, by the way, that's good. That's a good tension. We have a defibrillator right outside the door here. The tension is good. Just, just hold on to that for a little bit. But, but write this down. Write this down. Somewhere between, let's see, half and all. Then you can fold that up, stick it in your front pocket. We'll come back to it later. Just hold it there and, uh, and hold, on to your, hold on to your seats. We'll not forget to retrieve that later. First, we need to talk about Agabus. Agabus. He was one of the prophets who had come down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and that is in verse 27. Now, if you're new to the Bible, uh, a prophet or to prophesy uh, simply means to speak for God. That's what the word means. A, A prophet speaks for God. The person who prophesies speaks, thus saith the Lord. To prophesy does not mean to tell the future. But in this case, there is a futuristic element to the prophecy. Uh, But there are many times in the Old and New Testament where a prophet speaks and uh, gives a prophecy without any future prediction attached. But a prophet, by the power of God's Spirit, speaks the words of God. Uh, To say that you speak for God, by the way, That is very, very serious. But every prophet who speaks for God, he he needs to be validated that they are truly speaking for God. That's so God's people aren't led astray. But by them speaking words of their own, and then just attributing their words to God. Nobody ever do that, would they? You know, whenever somebody comes to you and says, God told me, be careful. Be careful. When the Holy Spirit of God speaks, He provides, He adds validation. What conduit, think back now in Acts, we've been in this quite a while now, what conduit has the Spirit already been using when the Spirit speaks in Acts? Throughout Acts, persons filled with the Spirit or by the Spirit speak for God how? It's not that hard to find. The Spirit speaks through a person in a human language they have never before learned. It's called tongues. This has already been established as the norm in Acts ever since Pentecost. In chapter 2, we are told that at Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. That's how the Spirit does it. And the people who were visiting from the foreign lands at that time, were they replied in amazement. They said, we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. And that's what it means to speak for God or in the Spirit or by the Spirit. And Peter even clarifies for us. Uh, he says that these tongues that you are hearing are in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophet. His name is Joel. These tongues that you are hearing are fulfillment of Joel where it says, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And And Peter says, what you're hearing here, these people speaking in tongues they've never learned, and people from countries who are interpreting, who grew up with that language, what you hear there is God speaking, and it is prophesying. You're hearing uh, from God. They're speaking of the glories of God. And a tongue became prophecy, or prophesying, or God speaking, at the moment they're interpreted. Before that, they're a tongue. Once the message is interpreted by an interpreter, then it becomes prophecy, God speaking. You know, I gave a full 
full treatment of tongues, the proper biblical understanding of tongues, uh, back on November 13th of 2022. And you can go, go to our church website and pull that message up if you like. It's, it's titled, Tongues Are for Prophecy. Tongues are for prophecy. In Acts 10, Cornelius and his household received the same gift of tongues in our exalting God. Uh, later, uh, when Paul will visit Ephesus in chapter 19, we will see that he will lay his hands upon them. The Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking it with tongues and prophesying. So the speaking of tongues is a conduit for prophecy. But they have to be interpreted. The natural conclusion by any reader in Acts who started at the beginning, didn't just come into the middle and pull out a verse, but started at the beginning and reading through Acts would be in verse 28, that when Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, the conclusion would naturally be that Agabus spoke by the Spirit in a language that he had never before learned. And that someone in Antioch would have said, that's my native Russian. I can tell you exactly what he was saying. And he, and he just said that there's going to be a great famine throughout the land, throughout, throughout the empire. And again, early in Acts, tongues is established at Pentecost as the norm for prophesying. That's the conduit. And, and a person spontaneously speaking in a foreign language they had never before learned is how the Spirit of God empowered the church to know that they weren't getting their leg pulled. Tongues is never portrayed in Scripture as speaking unintelligible gibberish. And then afterward, after you've spoken in unintelligible gibberish, telling everyone what the Spirit just said to them through you. Talk about the potential for abuse. Tongues was always a bona fide human language, and if there's not a valid interpreter present uh, who knows that language or grew up that language, uh, we'll learn later, you have to remain silent if there is no interpreter. So I take it. I take it that whenever the Spirit is portrayed as speaking, as He will be again in, in chapter 13 saying, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That isn't just a voice coming out of thin air. When it says that the Spirit says that, um, due to the pattern established already in the book of Acts, the Spirit speaks to the church through tongues, through language. Prophesying is never seen in Scripture. Prophesying is never just somebody standing up in the church or prayer meeting saying, I've got a word. Never see that in Scripture. Uh, all kinds of potential abuse when someone says that they're speaking for God, but there is no, no uh, validation along with it. The church in Antioch learns from Agabus, there's going to be a famine all over the world. Your translation probably says... Another faithful interpretation. The same language was used uh, by other writers in that day, secular writers in that day, uh, that would define that as throughout the Roman Empire. It would be a major famine throughout the empire. And it, could, it can be used, the, the phraseology has been used to understand a particular region of the world, uh, but widespread, severe. That's why it says throughout the world. Grammatically, this great famine does not have to be understood as engulfing Antioch, which is 300 miles north, uh, at least not at the same magnitude as it's going to be experienced in other places of the world or the Roman Empire. And this famine, it is well documented in secular historical resources to have hit Judea during the reign of Claudius, you see that reference in your passage. During the reign of Claudius, right? And secular historians record that during the reign of Claudius, that there was a severe famine in Judea from 46 to 48 AD. 
We'll learn in chapter 12, the famine spreads as far north as Tyre and Sidon. And this famine was, we know what it's due to as well. They recorded that it was due to severe flooding of the Nile. Severe flooding. Wiped out crops in Egypt. Egypt served as a grain breadbasket for, for all of Judea and that region throughout the empire. Many portions of the empire relied on Egypt exports of grain. And uh, this... this uh, this flooding of the Nile wiped out the crops. Egypt didn't have exports to send out. Uh, and this famine, it, it hit Judea especially hard between 17 and 18 years after Pentecost. Historical event. And due to increasing persecution, you know, those Christians are strange people. The severity of this famine is going to hit the church in Judea disproportionately hard. They aren't going to get treated with quite as much compassion from Herod as uh, maybe some of the other Jews. It's going to hit them especially hard. So what does the Spirit of God say? The Spirit of God says that there is going to be a great famine. Notice that is all the Spirit says. There's no record of Agabus prescribing how Antioch is supposed to respond. All Agabus said is there is going to be a great famine throughout the world. Instead, the church's response probably arises from the instruction which they are receiving from Saul and Barnabas through the written word of God. So so how does a Christian respond to a famine? You, You can now pull that piece of paper back out of your pocket again. As I said earlier, it is not a stretch to conclude Whatever teaching the church received from Saul and Barnabas in verse 26 serves as a foundation for how they are going to respond. So once the church learns what Jesus taught, what the Old Testament taught, how how Zacchaeus responded to Jesus, uh, you know, behold, Lord, I, I I will give away half of my possessions to the poor. Uh, It it is possible to envision those who were first called Christians as saying to Saul and Barnabas, so what shall we give? What should we give? Would half be enough for the saints who are starving in Judea? Those who belong to our Lord's precious flock, which he purchased with his own blood, would half be enough, and they probably got out their checkbook and said, should I just sign it and hand it over to you? And I imagine Saul and the apostles to the Gentiles saying something like this. Saul said, you know, after I was forced to flee Damascus, He lowered me down through a bucket. I had to get out of there. I've spent much time in Arabia. I've been in Tarsus for years. I'm not going to boast, but over the past several years, Saul would have said, I've received from the Lord many spectacular visions and revelations. And during that season, the Lord Jesus himself revealed to me many things about the spirit of grace. And part of that framework is in in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, about the vision that Paul had going up into heaven. The Lord was with him many different times, teaching him through this period. But Saul says, you know, I, I learned a lot about grace. Still, the Christians would have surely asked Saul and Barnabas, how do we respond? How do we be the church? And I can only imagine Saul and Barnabas advising Antioch 
in the same way with which Saul writes in the Spirit to Corinth some years later. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he writes, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, and His righteousness endures forever. And Antioch's response is recorded in verse 29. In the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. The amount is something you're going to have to determine for yourself. But notice, just as we have studied in recent months, poverty relief is always prioritized to the saints, to those brethren who are impoverished. The famine affects everyone in Judea, very broad famine, but the church in Antioch is concerned about the Christians in Judea, and they direct their giving to the church and Christ's beloved saints in Jerusalem and Judea. As you recall our scripture reading earlier, the Apostle Paul prescribes preaching the gospel for Gentiles. Preach the gospel to Gentiles. If Paul believed that handing out gifts and money to the Gentiles to whom he witnessed, if he believed that it would enhance or improve his prospects, of winning unbelievers to faith, he would have surely taken a collection among the churches to benefit unbelievers. He'd use it as a strategy of winning the loss to Christ. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, in the book of Romans, Paul relies upon the power of the gospel to convert unbelievers. And, and he orders a collection from the churches for the benefit of believers in Jerusalem. He, he writes in Romans 15, verse 25, he says, I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And whenever we converse on this topic, I always include a disclaimer that that we Christ followers are to have a good reputation for doing good to all. If you're going to pull over and help someone change a spare tire, you're not going to worry about whether they're a Christian or not. You're going to worry about whether they need help, right? Christians are known for doing good to all. But handing out gifts to pagans is never represented in Scripture as a strategy for winning the lost. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of sins by the Spirit, bold preaching of the gospel is what unbelievers need. And like us, The Christians in Antioch had a limited amount of financial resources. And they directed them to relieve the suffering of the elect. Again, in Acts 11 verse 29, And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Why Jerusalem? 
for one thing, you know, Jerusalem had sent a lot to Antioch. They sent Barnabas. And Barnabas brought Saul. Other men who are known as prophets have been dispatched as well to Antioch, Agabus and his friends. So, so there was a spiritual indebtedness to Jerusalem. Surely. But more so, Judea is where the famine was the worst. They were hit hard. And when there is a famine in the land, churches are to take up collections to help other churches that are struggling. You know, if you've been here any length of time, um, you know that this is why we emphasize Christian poverty relief as a significant portion of our missions in our annual budget. You can look at it in the report as you pick one up. Um, Taking up collections for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are destitute, it is prescribed all over Scripture, throughout Scripture. You can hardly exhaust the passages. And we've discovered that Acts chapter 11, this little nugget here, verses 27 to 30, it's another one of those passages. Here it is again. And it's not unclear. And there's always persecution and famine somewhere. And there's always a Christian, one of God's sheep, who lacks basic food and covering somewhere. And it is every local church's responsibility to be sensitive as to how we can find them and employ the enormous wealth that we enjoy to relieve the suffering of God's flock. Folks, this, this is an incredible privilege that we have. Those in Antioch send it, we're told, to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, this is the first time that elders are mentioned, by the way, in, in Scripture. And uh, we see at least elders of the church is mentioned in Scripture. And, and we see that they're described as being in charge of the local finances in Jerusalem And they have joined the apostles as overseers of the flock. That's what an elder means, an overseer. And and elders will be responsible for distributing the money where it is needed. And we'll see the elders in Acts from here on forward will will take an increasing role, a more substantial role as, as as we continue through Acts, even to the point where Peter will say in one of his, he will write in one of his later epistles uh, that he himself identifies as one of their fellow elders. It's a transition beginning here from apostolic uh, oversight to oversight by elders. But here's where the rubber really meets the road. It's found in verse 29. I don't want to really finish this page, but um, I would be unfair to you if I didn't. In the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. It's according to your means. Not every Christian has the same means or potential to give. Some have exponentially more than others. And notice, this is not based on a system of tithing. I've said before, but there's new faces here. If you have someone who's got $10 million and they give 10%, a million dollars to the poor, that's not a sacrifice. They're living off $9 million. They never reached the level of generosity. Never the level of sacrifice. Someone who's on minimum wage may hit the level of sacrifice before 10%. Each has to determine what is right in their own minds. For each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, 
not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I'm going to try to run gentle on this. Um, Again, I'd be unfaithful to Scripture to gloss over it. Scripture and the teaching of the apostles and the instruction by Jesus demands much of those who are wealthy. Demands much of those who have means. And, And we in America have a lot of means on the world scale. We're all wealthy on the world scale. But some really have means. And for your benefit, this church recognizes that the means which God has provided to you are for the purposes of His kingdom. If you're a Christian, that's why you have those means. You'll read in the annual report how the time, talent, and the treasure which God vests in you as a vessel of His Holy Spirit, what God has vested in you as a Christian, that is a trust. It's a financial trust. It's a time trust. It's a ministry trust. And Christ Himself is respecting a return on His investment when he comes back. Our disproportionate means are not given by God to us to pad our lifestyles. As each has means, those means are contributed to the church and the poor in Christ. If you have a lot of means, we can increase our budget in Christian poverty relief or point you to a place where you can help with those means. But you'll you'll find in the Bible that there are many things to use our money for. It's, It's wise to save a portion for retirement. Rita and I save. I wouldn't want to die and leave her without anything to care for her through retirement. The ant collects for the winter that will come. Uh, There's nothing wrong with planning. Actually, I advise it. I really do. I advise planning. Have an emergency fund. If you can afford it, your wife should drive a reliable car with air conditioning even. Yeah. Use the fruit of your labor. Enjoy what God has blessed you with. Very clear principle in Scripture. But you'll never find it in the teaching of Jesus or His apostles any license for using our means to live lavishly. Purchasing vacation hotspot properties, lavish yachts, vast car collections, amassing treasure on earth. Christ says, sell your possessions, those which you don't need, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Our Lord makes it very hard for one of these Christ followers, one of these Christians to live exotically or lavishly while on earth. Our means are for Him and for him to use for his kingdom. And as you determine in your heart what that looks like for you, contributing to the poor in Christ is a very high priority of his. One theologian, uh, I'll quote this as we begin to prepare for the Lord's Supper, uh, prepare your hearts um, one theologian I've quoted numerous times during the series, his name's Eckerd Schnabel. He writes this, quote, If relationships between rich American churches and poor churches in the global south are true partnerships, the former, he's referring to rich American churches, the former will share their material resources 
so that the real and urgent needs of the poor churches are alleviated. While the latter, speaking of the poorer churches, while the latter share their prayers, their experience of suffering, their spiritual integrity, their willingness to sacrifice so that the material rich, materially rich churches will also become spiritually rich. Unquote. What we need as Christians, desperately, in America, is to become spiritually rich. And as you read the annual report, I pray you'll pay special attention uh, to the opening part of the report, which exhorts us to do the simple things well. Prayer, fellowship, evangelism, service. Our American wealth has been detrimental to these foundational principles of biblical Christianity. If we didn't have 489 channels, maybe we'd show up for prayer meeting. If we didn't have garages and backyards filled and overflowing with chrome tailpipes that need to be polished regularly to keep the rust from chewing them away, we'd probably spend more time visiting the sick, visiting the hospitals before a surgery. Folks, these early Christians weren't plagued with the materialistic distractions that we are today. Uh, So rather than sitting at home, it seems they invested their time and resources into one another. Might we consider the needs of our brothers and sister, and how as members of this body we might meet those needs of the weak, of the sick, of the lonely, of the impoverished, and through the body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, God has called us into one faith, one baptism, one body, His church. And Jesus died for our sins. He died on the cross and He rose again from the dead. Let's pray. Father, You've given us Your Spirit to govern our lives and to live in a manner empowered by Him. And uh, as we learn from Your Word to show mercy and compassion and to visit the sick, to, uh, to provide for our families and for those uh, around us when we have extra. Lord, we're grateful for the knowledge and understanding of this. And uh, we rejoice that we have the privilege uh, to serve you in each and every way. Father, uh, be glorified in this. Thank you for Lee Puchel uh, being here with us, the testimony that... Uh, he shared, and the life that He has shared with us, Lord. We're so grateful um, to be together for the bread and the cup and the remembering of Your Son who gave it all for us. In Christ's name, Amen.